You're listening to Rhodey Radio, Rhode Island Library Radio Online. Hi there, my name is Amy Vanderweel. I'm the manager of the South Providence Library in Providence, Rhode Island, and chair of Reading Across Rhode Island, the One Book, One State program run by the Rhode Island Center for the Book. Today, you'll hear a conversation between local theater director and history teacher, Jonathan Pitts Wiley, and award-winning author, Tochi Onyebuchi. Onyebuchi's novel, Riot Baby, is a fiction companion read to this year's Reading Across Rhode Island selection, Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You, by Jason Reynolds. This conversation was produced in collaboration with PCL Reads, a series of community literary events organized by the Providence Community Library. We're so fortunate to be joined tonight by Jonathan Pitts-Wiley, Artistic Director of Mixed Magic Theater in Pawtucket, History Teacher at Moses Brown, and a close personal friend of our, our guest author, Mr. Toshi Onyabushi. Tochi is the author of multiple award-winning speculative and science fiction works, including Beasts Made of Night, its sequel, Crown of Thunder, War Girls, and his adult fiction debut, Riot Baby, which was published in 2020. I had such a hard time like narrowing down which awards I was going to say that this book has won. It's <laughs> a little bit insane. So I'm just going to give you the highlights here. Uh, so this year it was nominated for a 2021 NAACP award for outstanding literary work of fiction. It's a winner of the American Library Association Alex Award for books written for adults that have special appeal to young adults, winner of the 2020 New England Book Award for fiction, and it was named Best of 2020 Pick by NPR, Book Riot, Publishers Weekly, New York Public Library, as well as being called Magnificent by the New York Times. So we're so glad that you were both able to join us tonight. <laughs> Woo! We out here, boy. <laughs> um, yes, we is. Yes, we is. First, it's an incredible honor to, to be here and part of this program and to be able to sit down and chit chat a bit uh, with a man for whom I have in abundant respect. This is this is great. So I'm, I'm not going to stand on too much ceremony. Um, you know, we out here hype. And, and this is a, a truly magnificent moment for me for for so many different reasons. So I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to get into my questions here. So since no one uses Google, Tochi, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your, your upbringing, and really kind of what, what first sparked your interest in literature and, and writing in particular? Like so many things in my life, so many good things in my life, a lot of it comes back to mom. Um, originally, I was going to be a comic book artist, right? I loved to draw. And mom had this second job where we would uh, basically go all around the state of Connecticut cleaning office buildings. And in so many of these places, people were getting ready to throw out these ring binders full of blank sheets of paper, just getting ready to chuck them. And mom saw this kid that loved to draw. And so she was like, yoink. And so I would just, these would be like 500 sheets of paper in a single binder. And I would fill them up in like a week and a half, right? And I was a kid in a candy shop. And one day, I'm one of, I might've been maybe eight years old. I'm drawing all these characters and mom comes up and she says, you know, Tochi, you have so many of these characters. Why don't you write stories for them? And at the time I was like, mom, I want to draw. Why are you giving me homework? Like, can I live? And, you know, so I started out writing single paragraph summaries of their adventures. Then one paragraph became two, became three. And then they started meeting each other. And I was like, uh, this is, I, I could bang with this. I could bang with this. And then fast forward to seventh grade and I had my first creative writing class. So mm. the first time that it's part of, you know, a curricular system. Now in Nigerian households, as you know, grades are your life worth. Like that's, <laughs> that's how you, that's how you like, you know, pay the charge of admission to stay in the house. And I realized very early on that this creative writing class could be relied upon to get me a good grade. And so not only was there this thing that I love to do, but I had the positive reinforcement of like being able to earn my seat at the dining table. Um, and that just fed itself so that by the time high school came around, I was off to the races. And the thing about, the thing about me in writing was I always knew that I was going to write. Whether or not I got published, I was always going to write. I loved it too much not to do it. And it was only a matter of figuring out what else I was going to do in addition to the writing. Sure. Um, so, you know, I, you know, 
because of what I was interested in and what I was good at, I got sped on the path to law school. But there was never any question about, oh, if I'm too busy being a lawyer, I won't be able to write. No, like it was, I was going to make that work. I was always going to make that work. And it actually happened that so many of the social justice concerns that I was introduced to in law school ended up making their way into my work. Right, and I definitely have commentary or question about that that later because I'm I'm fascinated to hear. I don't know that we've ever talked about it, uh, you know, sort of quite in depth. And I guess we have a nice opportunity to do that here. So, as you know, uh, I thought Joseph Harris's review of Riot Baby uh, for Black Nerd Problems was absolutely spot on. We, you know, we've kind of discussed this, and before we get into the discussion of Riot Baby, I, I, I wanted to pick your brain a bit about the concept of the Black nerd. You know, because I think that while there's something subversive and kind of groundbreaking about it, it's also fraught with tension as the classification in of itself sort of is making a not so flattering commentary on what blackness is and is not. So my question for you is, how did you move through the minefield of cultural expectations as a kid and in, in, in sort of in, in, the, in the moment you kind of were just speaking about and how has it informed how you move through the world as an adult and an author? So it's, so I'll, I'll tackle the now uh, before I get to the, the sort of past. And I think what's fascinating about being a blurred now is that it's, it's hot, like it's what's hot in the streets. Like people, Michael B. Jordan will get asked in interviews, what's his favorite anime? Like people are dropping, rappers are dropping anime references in their, like in their lines. It's, it's cool to be into Attack on Titan right now. Um, and it's, it's been fascinating to see that now. So like growing up, I grew up in predominantly white household, uh, predominantly white um, environments, whether it was school, neighborhood, church, all of that. And so I was accustomed to being in a place where my interests weren't necessarily shared with the people around me. Right, so the biggest influence for me as a kid was Toonami. And so I was already watching Cartoon Network like a fiend as a kid, but every Monday through Friday, uh, four to 6 p.m. on Cartoon Network was this block of anime. And to my knowledge, it was maybe the first big splash of anime in the United States. Like they were showing stuff on a you know, sci-fi channel back in you know, Saturday mornings and whatnot. But this was the first, I think, uh, like TV block dedicated specifically to animated programming like this. So you had Thundercats, Voltron, Sailor Moon, Dragon Ball Z took over, you know, Gundam Wing. And this is how I'm imbibing storytelling. And this is also what ends up influencing my writing. You know, when I first started out, I was basically writing Dragon Ball Z and Gundam Wing fanfic. Like it was, it was people in giant robots and people shooting energy blasts at each other. Like that was, that was what I was writing. And that never left. I think, I think what's interesting is the, for me, the primary tension, at least in my experience, was in you know, other creative writing workshops or being with other writers for whom anime wasn't necessarily as big an influence or even science fiction or fantasy wasn't as big an influence. People that would, that would cite Hemingway and Faulkner as their primary influences. People that would cite Raymond Carver as their influences. Um, and like, that's cool, but like, I'm trying to write about these space pirates, right? <laughs> so, so that's, that's sort of where I, where I come from. I think right now with regards to, to blurs, it's almost, I think part of it too, is that with social media in particular, all these pockets, all these isolated pockets of black kids who watch Toonami or black kids who listen to David Bowie or black kids who, who read, you know, The Wheel of Time by Robert Jordan, you know, where before we might've existed in our isolated pockets, uh, now we know each other or like we can at each other on Twitter. We can get into each other's DM, we can form community. And out of that, you have the growth of platforms like Black Nerd Problems. Um, I think it's beautiful. I think it's absolutely beautiful because it's a space that we're not traditionally seen in. And at the same time, I do think what's interesting and in speaking to you know, what you were getting at earlier, it, it hints at, but doesn't necessarily encapsulate the entire notion of a multiplicity of blackness, right? Because mm -hmm. there's this idea that, oh, there are certain things that black people aren't supposed to be into, right? Like we're not supposed to be metalheads, 
right? We're not supposed to, you know, be be walking around with the with the silk like button down anime print. <laughs> you remember those? Two thousand three was a wild time. Um, but like, you know. There's, you know, there's this supposed fence around blackness that we're not supposed to stray out of. And I think the, the, the concept of the blur of the blurred is uh, sort of operating in revenge against that. So in, I wanna sort of drill down on this a little bit more before I get into the next question. Does occupying that space feel like an empowering articulation, what are, uh, what are the sort of the pitfalls that you that you found around and that you've had to sort of navigate and work your way through? I mean, I think part of it is, you know, as a writer in particular, being taken seriously. And it's less a problem now because you'll talk to various storytellers and you'll ask them, okay, what's the perfectly told story? And eight times out of 10, you'll hear Avatar The Last Airbender, right? Like there's an entire generation of content creators now, not just in literature, but all over that can cite Avatar as a foundational influence for them, right? But in a lot of these writing spaces, um, you know, even in sort of science fiction and fantasy spaces, when I was coming up, you know, you were basically supposed to ape, you know, people like David Eddings or Robert Jordan or, you know, Tolkien. You were supposed to write these fantasies that were set in simulacra of Western Europe, right? Um, they weren't supposed to necessarily involve certain anime tropes or even anything outside of that mold. And times have changed. And, you know, shout out to, to every sort of forebear that has fought against the strictures that had been imposed on the genre of science fiction and fantasy, because now I can come out with a book like War Girls, which is very blatantly Gundam Wing in Nigeria, and like get, you know, be a Locus Award finalist, right? Like that's, that's, the space that I get to live in now because of the people that came before and were like, look, we treat these things seriously. We treat these influences seriously. You're going to treat them seriously. And I think it's interesting commentary too on the wider notion of what gets accepted as serious, right? Because for a very long time, like, you know, if you were a Black author writing about concerns within the black community, you couldn't be taken seriously unless you were writing about it a certain way, you know, unless you were hitting them with invisible man, right? Like, <laughs> you know, you could- I still haven't finished that one. Still haven't. I can't get through it. I can't get through it. Ellison's a lot. Ellison, Ellison is a lot. I can't get through it. Uh, but continue, I'm sorry, bro. But yeah, no, I think it, it's, it's simply a matter of, you know, what informs your storytelling? What informs the way that you move through life being taken seriously? Sure, sure. It, it, you know, again, I'm working through my questions here. I'm proud of myself. Uh, <laughs> so a lot of your writing before Beast Made of Night, which is kind of like your debut, um, a lot of your writing was done while pursuing an MFA from NYU and a JD from Columbia. And for those keeping score at home, your boy is barred in the state of New York as an attorney because what? So my question is twofold. The first question, what in the vibranium are you made out of? And the second question is, how did this confluence of interests inform the work you were doing at the time? Certainly. Uh, so something that mom told me like right when I was on the edge of going to high school was take advantage of every opportunity that's given to you. Um, and I was getting ready to go to, to, to Choate, this, you know, very prestigious boarding school. And it was an incredible opportunity for me. Um, in many ways, it, it sort of set the course for a lot of the way that my life would go afterwards. Um, and at Choate, I had the opportunity to study abroad for the first time. Like it was the first time leaving the country that didn't involve like a family trip to Nigeria. You know, I got to play organized sports for the first time. I got to do theater. Like I got to do all of these incredible things. And I made sure that I did all of them. So it wasn't like I was picking and choosing. I was like, the thing was cool. And also too, like, as, because it was part of the whole school thing, it was free. Like I did, there was no, <laughs> there was no barrier to entry for it, right? And that, is a large part of why my high school experience was as rich and bountiful and, and enjoyable as it was. And I took that right with me to college. Um, I wanted to do all of the things that I enjoyed. And I wanted to make sure too that they, that they're, like the thing about writing is you can do it around anything, 
no matter what other job you have, as long as you have writing implements, like you can write, whether it's a moleskin notebook and a pen or a laptop or whatever, you know, you can always write. And for, for me, it was less about finding the time to write so much as like the time just being there. It's like the thing about writing for me is it's a thing that I love doing. There, there's no other single activity I love doing more than writing um, to the point that it's almost a compulsion. Like if I go too long without writing, I start to feel off. It's like gravity for me. It's a thermodynamic principle. It's a thing that like I can't conceive of living without. And so it always made sense to me that I was writing while I was doing all of these other things. And you know, ever since high school, that was when I first got the notion of writing professionally. And so I learned very early on, like how to write books and how to, you know, write query letters and how to contact agents and how to, you know, get the attention of small press publishers, you know, publishers and their editors and all like, I, I, there was a thing I wanted to do and the barriers to entry weren't insurmountable. So I was going to do it. And what was interesting for me too, was that the fiction, particularly in college, ended up operating similar to how like the Read Across Rhode Island program is operating with the choice of Stamped and then the companion book of Riot Baby. You know, I would be taking a class on international political economy, you know, this grad seminar, and we'd be studying things like sovereign debt and capital migration and all of that stuff. And meanwhile, I'd be writing a thriller set in the Balkans about arms dealers that integrated those concepts into the fiction. And in a way, writing the fiction was a way for me to make sense of what I was studying in the classroom. Mm. Um, so it, in a certain way, it was helping me with my studies, so to speak. Um, but that, I think, is a very good example for me, at least, of ways in which I was able to integrate other parts of my life into my fiction. Sure. Changing gears a bit here, as a writer, you're nothing short of prolific. I mean, check this boy's stat sheet. That's a bad man right here. And I like you're probably writing something while we're talking. I, I'm, I'm <laughs> well, you know, I just had to get some off right quick. I want to take a minute to to discuss your development and your just your sheer production in the context of. Some of the challenges, you know, that you faced uh, as you've built up your life and your career, you know, you lost your dad at a, at a pretty young age, and you've also battled some pretty significant, you know, mental health and addiction challenges. Uh, and so my question, you know, and you can elaborate as much as you want or don't want, is, you know, how have these challenges informed your life and work? And, and, and I say that in that order, right? You know, how has it informed your life and your work? And what perspectives, you know, do you feel comfortable sharing, you know, with other writers or really anyone who, who's watching this, you know, who, who may be facing similar challenges? Certainly, I think, you know, first and foremost, you know, those two things, particularly the loss of a parent, what they tend to do, or at least for me, is really narrow your focus. Like you figure out in your life what matters and what doesn't. Like perspective imposes itself on you, right? Um, so I think very early on, I was forced to really reckon with what I thought was important in my life, what mattered. Um, and also, too, the notion that, and my, you know, my father passed at a very young age. He was 39 when he died of cancer. I and mean, so one of the things that really got ingrained in me, and it, may not, it might not necessarily be the healthiest impulse, but this idea that, okay, like I'm on borrowed time, right? I need to get as much of my life, I need to live as much life as possible before like the thing happens, whatever the thing is, right? And that I think is a big part of why I was able to take mom's advice about doing all of the things as literally as I was able to take it. I was like, I wanna collect all these experiences. I wanna live as expansive a life as possible. I wanna do all of the things. And so I, I made it an effort to do all of the things. And I think similarly with you know, addiction, it's very fascinating because similarly, it narrows your focus. Mm. Um, Oftentimes, you know, when, when, whether, you know, whatever the substance is, whether it's the crack, whether it's alcohol, whether it's heroin, time takes on this distorted 
sense. So that really there's like the hit and, and then like the period of time between the hit. Like, you know, family, work, all that stuff, all that gets stuffed into that amorphous period between the hit as like the thing that doesn't matter or the thing that's in the way of like the next hit or whatever. And so coming out of the other side of that, you see the, you, you see things get sort of reversed. You're able to look back at that and the things that you, the things that you lost, the things that you came close to losing that you realize are very important to you, you realize, okay, those are, those are things that are very important to me. It's almost as though there's this clarifying process that went on. So I think those two experiences for me were instrumental in introducing perspective. So I guess a, a sort of, a sort of, you know, facile, you know, episode <laughs> illustrating this would be my, first semester of law school at, at Columbia, we get to exam period, we get to reading period, right? And this is our first like 1L year, everybody, or at least that first semester, we're all in the trenches together. Everybody's cool with each other for the most part. Um, like the, the people that are gonna grow up to become like state prosecutors and horrible people haven't quite like grown into that super villain role yet. Like everybody's a good guy at this point still. But exam period hits and all of a sudden all these kids, because a lot of them came straight from college to law school, all these kids are running around tearing their hair out worried about their civil procedure exam like this is the worst thing in the world that's ever happened to them. I'm literally watching kids lose hair in real time over a Civ Pro exam. And I'm, I'm standing back and I'm watching all of this and I'm like chuckling to myself because I was like, if this is literally the worst thing that has happened to you, God bless your life, <laughs> right? So like perspective, like it's, it, and that was one of the things that helped me get through law school was that I had been through all that other stuff. I had lived a whole entire life by the time I got here. So when I'm confronted with this like difficult thing, I can put it in perspective and be like, okay, this is far from the most difficult thing that I've ever been through. Um, I can do this, I can do this. And if I'm not able to do this, it's not the end of the world. Uh, that I think is a very, very, very big lesson. And so I think that is one of the things that I took with me into my writing because there's so much rejection involved in writing. I submitted novels, I queried for 15 years before Beast Made of Night got published. And I wrote literally as many whole novels before Beast Made of Night got published, right? And if for 15 years you're doing a thing and people are telling you no, for 15 years, a decade and a half, people are telling you no over and over and over again. Usually in any other line of work, that's a signal that maybe you should find a different line of work, right? Like maybe this isn't it. Like maybe this is just like how the die fell, right? But I loved writing so much that I never thought about not continuing to do this. I never thought about not trying to keep getting published because in, you know, when measured against so many other things that had happened in my life, a rejection letter from an agent was like, I mean, you know, I eat that. <laughs> like, I eat that for breakfast, right? Like, I, you know, I can do that. Like, that's, I, you know, that's just chalk it up to the game, right? And so you just like, keep it moving, right? So I think, you know, in, you know, so in short, like those, those two aspects of my life introduce perspective. And they also, they also showed me how durable a human being can be. Like, I think that's a very important point as well. Like I, you know, I, I boxed for a little bit and it's very, it's a very clarifying instance when you get hit in the face. Yes. <laughs> it's a very, it's a very clarifying, a lot of stuff comes into high definition. <laughs> it's like, you realize, you know, you're not made out of bricks, but at the same time, you realize you're not made out of glass either. So I think that was a very, I was very fortunate to, to, you know, learn the lessons, you know, or at least take those lessons from those events because it's not guaranteed, right? Like you could go through those things and like totally go left where I went right. And it would be a completely valid response, right? But I was very fortunate that that was, that that was how those things turned out. Is there a moment or even series of moments where you kind of were like, no, nah, this ain't gonna go this way. We know how you feel about the writing, you know, that like that's sort of like, no, you're just gonna do it regardless. But in terms of sort of 
writing the ship, if you will, or, or finding the balance. And I'm not trying to treat it as if you, you know, you're just square biz, you don't have any issues, problems or anything, you know, of that nature. But were there any moments where you're just like, nah, man, it can't go this way. It, 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 and it sort of helped to bring about that perspective that you're talking about. Oh, man. I mean, I'd say, you know, probably the biggest instance was like getting sober. Uh, that was <laughs> that was a big one. Um, yeah, because like, you know, you get to at least for me, I can only really, really speak for myself. Like it got to a point where where it wasn't necessarily that my life was unmanageable, but that I, I realized that I was in danger of losing the things, the things that I loved the most in my entire life. And I wasn't in a position where I could show up for those things and show up for those people. And that needed to change. Like that I recognized was a thing that needed to change. And I wanted to change it, um, you know, with a strong enough will. And, you know, there's also the, the grace of God too. Like there's that element of it as well, where I was able to make it into the rooms when I was able to make it into the room. So like that, I think is a, is a very big part. I think another sort of smaller example, but I think gets to your point as well, was when I got to law school, I was going to be a corporate lawyer. Um, initially, initially, I know, right, right? Initially, I was like, because I was into a lot of international criminal stuff when I got in, and I was like, oh, I'm going to like do international criminal law. I'm going to like work for Interpol or whatever. I'm going to do really fascinating stuff, right? And then I found out how much you make as a corporate attorney. And I was like, damn, so this is how I'm going to pay for law school. <laughs> Yo, fam. So the summer, so the way that it works is the summer after your first year, you do what's called EIP, early interview program. And you interview with, they, you know, they stick all of you in the Doubletree Hotel in Times Square, your ill-fitting suits and all of that. And you interview with associates and partners of various like big law firms, most of whom had offices in New York or home bases in New York, offices all over the country. And these are like 20, 30 minute interviews. If they like you, they give you a callback. They say, hey, we really liked you. Um, why don't you come by the office, you know, one of these afternoons? Um, and then you go, you talk to like four or five other attorneys, associates and partners. Um, and then if they like you, they say, hey, come work for us the summer after your second year. So the summer between your second and third year. So if you get an offer, like your whole second year of law school doesn't really like, you just gotta not drop out, right? Then you make it there. And <laughs> for, ten, for the 10 weeks that I, worked at that firm, I made more money than I had owned cumulatively in my entire life up until then. Yo, fam, for 10 weeks of doing almost nothing, I got paid $30,000, $30,000. And what happens after that is if they like you during your summer associateship, they say, hey, come work for us after graduation. So not only did your second year of law school not matter, your third year of law school matters even less. Again, just don't drop out because you already have the job. Right. Um, and to put things in perspective, the money that I earned during those 10 weeks was the same amount of money that I was forced to live on for an entire year in New York City. Um, and not just that, the first 30K was after taxes, the second 30K was before taxes. And that 30K before taxes was while I was doing the public interest work that I was really interested in. Sure. And so to explain that shift a little bit, you know, I thought I was going to be a corporate lawyer and work 80 hour weeks for however many years it took me to pay off the loans, right? And then I would be free to literally do whatever I wanted. But the summer after my first year of law school, I got to go to the West Bank to work with a prisoner's rights organization that advocated on behalf of Palestinian Arab detainees held illegally in the West Bank or held illegally in uh, Israeli territory, in Israeli jails. And that experience changed my life. And that was my first real like academic slash personal experience with the issue of mass incarceration. Um, right. And that experience was something that I took with me when I came back to the States. And all of a sudden, like that was the thing that took up the most mental real estate for me. That was the, the thing that I was most fascinated by, but also the thing where I felt I could most use my skills for good. And so that ended up informing where I would go after law school. So I worked at the attorney general's office and their civil rights bureau. And then I was with the legal aid society with their parole revocation defense unit. But so much of that could be traced back to that summer in Palestine. And 
I wanted to do that more than I wanted to not have student loan debt. So, so, but that calculation was another example of when, you know, I saw my life going a certain way and I was like, no, I actually, I want, I want it to go this way. Sure. We get into talking a little bit about your writing. Cause I think that's why people want to hear you talk. So turning our attention uh, to your debut novel, Beast Made of Night, of which, wait a minute, hold up. I keep my galley copy styling on y'all, letting y'all know, you know, signed. Can you tell us a bit about the decision to step into the YA world and sort of what are the challenges uh, and the opportunities presented by the genre? Certainly. I mean, you know, first of all, shout out to my girl, Tiff Lau. She's at um, uh, Henry Holt right now. But at the time that we met, or at the time that we sort of came together, she was at Razorbilt, the YA imprint of Penguin Random House. And I had, during the summer after law school, when I was supposed to be studying for the bar, I was trying to sell um, another novel. And it was an adult science fiction novel. And it's actually, funny enough, it's the novel titled Goliath that's going to be coming out winter 2022. Um, but, you know, summer 2015, I'm trying to sell this book and I'm being frustrated because everywhere I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting no's. And it's the best thing I've ever written. It's like far and away the best thing I've ever written. Um, so Tiff reached out over, I believe it might've been Facebook. And she was like, you know, I'm an editor, right? And we'd been friends um, for a number of years by then. Um, she's like, you know, I'm an editor, right? Like, I'd be more than happy to look at this for you. And I was like, bet. And I didn't think like I was going to sell the book or anything like that because she was a young adult editor. I was writing an adult book. Um, and it wasn't the type of thing that we could sort of mold into a young adult format. But a couple of weeks later, you know, I, I head to New York, we have coffee and whatnot. And so she's like, yo, this is really dope. But like, I like, we can't, I can't make this work with like my editors. I don't really know the adult editors like that, but I really want to work with you on something. And so that out of, out of that meeting came Beast Made of Night. I started writing it, sent her, sent her pages. She pitched it to her boss. And all of a sudden I'm at the table talking like tour dates and stuff. So it was very like very fortuitous, but also I think it was very interesting because it spoke to a certain ease. Writing Beast Made of Night was some of the most fun I'd had writing a book. It just felt free and easy. Like it, it flowed. Like Taj's whole, his voice, everything. It just flowed. And that in many ways sort of set the tone for what my young adult career would be. It like things felt, you know, not to say that it's like easy writing a book, but it felt smooth. Like there, the road wasn't bumpy at all. And so, you know, Beast Made of Night and Crown of Thunder were my first deal. And, you know, those books took off in a way that like really surprised me. And from there on, like I was able to sort of, you know, write into my interests and stuff. I was able to really take advantage of being in the YA space, but also too, like I had all this, uh, you know, adult work in the backlog, right? Like I had all these other books in the chamber. Right. Um, and so this was, this was essentially my foot in the door. And I was able to, you know, with Riot Baby in particular, like I wrote Riot Baby 2015. So I wrote Riot Baby, actually the first draft of Riot Baby, I wrote before I wrote Beast Made of Night. And then 2018, I was able to, to sell it to tour.com uh, through my editor, Roshi. It was another very fortuitous meeting there. And, you know, here we are now. And I mean, I, I want to take this moment to say too, that I essentially owe my writing career to women of color. <laughs> That's, I mean, if we're keeping it one wow. that wow. Talk about yeah. it. Talk like, about it. Like Tiff Lau, um, you know, Taiwanese American who bought my, my YA debut, Roshi Chen, Chinese American who bought my adult debut. And there's other stuff going on that I can't quite talk about yet, but let's just say that chief decision makers there are also women of color. Nice. My nice. entire writing career, I owe to women of color. Like, were it not for, were it not for them? And your like, mama, let's talk about <laughs> it. Let's talk about it. You know, like an umbrella over the entire enterprise, of course, there is mom. There is, of course, mom. Um, but yeah, no, like the entire, my entire being here, like it, I don't know that it would have happened. It certainly wouldn't have, have happened in this form were it not for them. Sure. Um, and it's been, it's been a truly like magnificent experience. And, you know, we can talk more about the editorial process and, and whatnot, but, you know, that, 
I was very, 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 very fortunate that they were my points of entry. So I have this, uh, the question sort of uh, sticking with, uh, related to this question before we, we get into the next, do you find, like, I, I'll be honest, when you told me like, yeah, I got a young adult novel, me with my ignorant self, I'm like, cool. Like, I mean, I'm happy for the homie secure the bag, but I was like, eh. what do you think is under, like misunderstood about this genre? And you see sort of more understanding uh, taking place sort of as, as time moves on or, or, or if you can just sort of speak to like perception of being a YA uh, novelist. Certainly. I think, you know, the, the stereotype that I think still to a certain day, to a certain extent persists, but not nearly as much as it used to be was that, you know, in YA, you're writing down to your audience. You're writing for, basically you're writing for, you know, and like no shade to them. They are a completely legitimate audience and definitely like, you know, part of the reading adult, like reading audience apparatus. Um, you're writing to the type of people that you will convince to buy tickets to see Twilight, right? You're writing to the type of people you can convince to buy tickets to see Hunger Games, because that was really where we saw the big explosion in young adult fiction, at least in terms of revenue, right? Because those are all adaptations. So, you know, you get books like Twilight that have this incredible fan base. They become the movies. They tear it up at the box office. Publishers realize, wait a second, we can make a ton of money off of this. And so everybody's looking for the next vampire book. Hunger Games makes its big, like Suzanne Collins kills it with Hunger Games. It becomes a big movie with Jennifer Lawrence and everything. And, you know, publishers are like, okay, let's try to find the next like Hunger Games, right? It becomes like a trend chasing thing. And so for a lot of people on the outside, their primary mode of contact is through the movies, right? And, you know, from the movies through, you know, to the books. And so they see the vast majority of the, the, people that are most excited about the movies and whatnot. And they figure that's the entire young adult audience, right? When like, it's very much not that at all. Like I've, I've found that, you know, over the course of my experience writing young adult, you know, it's not that I'm writing down to my audience. I'm writing up to them. Like these people are sophisticated, like no man's business in terms of how they, how they read. It's like the stuff that there's stuff in Beasts and Crown that's like that I hadn't seen in adult novels in terms of social commentary and stuff, right? Like there's there was a there was a period of time, I want to say 2018, when I believe it was number one and number two on the New York Times bestsellers list for young adult hard, hardcovers were two books about young about um, one of them was officer involved, but they were shoot, about shootings of black boys right? Which at the time particularly was such an incredibly pressing issue and demanded sort of being talked about and being written about. Um, and both of those books were by Black women. So there was The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas and Dear Martin by Nick Stone. Yep. I couldn't remember there ever being a time on the adult hardcover bestsellers list where there were books that examined so pressing and so immediate an issue as that. Sure. And that I think speaks to the fearlessness of a lot of young adult creators to literally talk about what's happening to their readership. Yeah. And you also at the same time see a broadening of that, or at least a broader understanding of that readership. Like those books are like, look, this is what's happening to us. And the idea of, of us as a readership, I think is in many ways sort of mind blowing to a lot of people on the outside who still see YA as like Harry Potter, Hunger Games, Twilight, right? I want to jump into you know uh, staying into the the, the realm of uh, of your writing. Much of your work is situated in a real uh, or imagined realities of the African diaspora and, and explores you know pretty deeply not just science fiction but Afrofuturism. And, and I want to name that because I'm like it's it's not just science fiction. Not that I'm coming for anybody, but I'm like this is Afrofuturism with its own kind of thing. And so. What draws you to that kind of storytelling? And I, similar to the YA question, do you ever feel like boxed in by it or, or, or have concerns that like, cause you do all kinds of writing. Again, I, I've known you, I, I've read a lot of it. Do you ever get concerned about being pigeonholed in that way? 
Um, I, I'm very fortunate in that I've been able to write about what I'm interested in. Um, I haven't run up against the sort of the edges, the bars of any cage yet. Um, and I don't expect to. I think part of it is that I'm able to write in the time that I'm writing in. If this were 15 years prior, um, it'd probably be a different story. If this was before like Nnedi Okorafor were doing the work that she were doing, um, it'd be a different story. Um, if, if it was back in a time where like the only other black people writing speculative fiction were like, or being published in major speculative fiction outlets were like Octavia Butler and Samuel Delaney, like it would be different. But like, I get to live in this like beautifully colorful time where um, people are writing all sorts of things. So for me, with regards to the content, it's all stuff that I'm interested in. So I think part of it too, I think, a, I think a lot about this actually. So representation, particularly in the young adult space is a big part of the discourse. Um, and particularly character representation, representation um, of your protagonists, et cetera, et cetera. For me, the more important thing was representation of the people behind the page. Like The Count of Monte Cristo is my favorite book of all time, not because there's any recognizable black character, but because Alexandre Dumas was a brother. Yep, all day. Like, exact. So, like, and the thing to me, too, is that, like, you know, the characters that I write about, particularly Black characters, they're just interesting. If you take any story, right, any story and that has, like, you know, a default white protagonist, right, any story in the world, and you make that character Black, automatically it's more interesting. And here's an example. So, um, True Detective Season 3, Mahershala Ali's character was originally written as white. Yep. And Mahershala Ali got the script. He auditioned for it. He petitioned Nick Pizzolatto and was like, yo, I like, I can do this. I can do this. And so Nick, Nikki P rewrote the script and rewrote the story for Mahershala Ali. And there's a moment very early on in the show where Mahershala Ali and I believe it's Stephen Dorff who plays his partner, his white partner, are going to interview the father of a missing girl. And they're heading up the dude's driveway and the dude, I think he's played by Scoop McNary. Um, you know, he sees them coming and he goes and immediately addresses Stephen Dorff, thinking that Stephen Dorff is the lead detective on this case. And Mahershala Ali has to like check him. And it's a like, it's an unspoken moment, it's completely unspoken, very small. You don't get that moment if Mahershala Ali's character is white. Sure. Sure. That's and that's basically the animating impulse for me with regards to the things that I choose to write about, the people I choose to write about. They're just interesting. Sure. So Amy in the chat telling us we need to stop talking and let people ask questions or something like that because you know Amy don't want me to be great. It's all right. I'm kidding, Amy. You're lovely. You know that. Uh, I just I would love to like follow you both around all day long and just listen to you talk. I think that's just everything that I want from I, to I totally agree. Yeah, right. Um, so we, we only have one question right now. I but I have a question. I would love to hear you guys talk. Well, it's not a specific question. I want to hear a little bit about Riot Baby. Uh, for the folks who haven't read it yet, will you tell us about Riot Baby, where it came from, your process for writing it? Amy, that was my next question. You oh, shoot, I'm sorry. I scooped you. I'm like, Man, I was feeling like I'm like, oh man, I'm failing. Oh god, they're, I'm fired. I'm fired twice. So I, I do. So I do want to get to that. So like, yes, let's do that. I agree with you. We out here. Yes. <laughs> she um, straight up boxed you out. She boxed you, you out. You, know, you see that? Trying to play your boy. <laughs> um. So since we can't discuss the sequel to Crown of Thunder that you refused to write for me, I will turn my attention to Riot Baby now. Every third, like, review of Riot Baby, we've kind of chuckled about this, calls it searing, crackling, searing, it's searing. But that's not, that's not, that's not a lie. I, when I read it, I really finished, I was like, oh, my boy was mad. So I share the same question. Where did that come from? What was, because you were pissed. <laughs> and I'm like, Damn, bro. I mean, I'm gonna give you the hug and the dap, but I need to know where you're coming from right now. Yeah, no, that's it's very much a like, yo, bro, are you okay? Type of book. Like, 
It's very, I, I absolutely recognize that. Yeah, no, so I started writing it, um, or at least its earliest incarnation, fall of 2015 and into 2016. And like, and I'm sure you remember this, is, it's very, that period of time is very immediate for me, in part because we're being deluged with all this videographic evidence of officer-involved shootings, like Laquan McDonald, Michael Brown, um, you know, going into 2016, Flando Castile, by that point, we'd seen Eric Garner murdered how many times on the timeline? All, like over and over and over and over and over again. Like Walter Scott, like we saw Sandra Bland's like last, like all of that, just this cascade. And I was, I was furious for many reasons, but maybe the principle of which was that things didn't seem to be changing. Things didn't seem to be getting better. Um, even with Tamir Rice, like, I, I so remember the heartbreak that came when then when basically like there was nothing was done, like nothing was to be done. And when it came out that the officer that had, that had killed him had like endured like previous complaints at his last job that just like went unheeded. So like all of this stuff is happening and I'm just, I'm incensed. And I can't like go out in the street or even hop on Twitter and be like, burn down the police state. Cause like, that's how I get banned, right? <laughs> like I can't, you know, I can't say that stuff out loud but I can write that into a story. And so like, that's what I did because I knew that what I was feeling in me, inside me was very dangerous if I oh. like acted on it. I knew it was the thing that was going to get me in trouble like capital T trouble, but it needed to go somewhere. Otherwise it was going to keep poisoning me. And so that's where Riot Baby started to come from. And at first it was, it was very much Kev's story. Um, it very much followed him. Actually the South Central chapter was the last bit of the book that was written. Mm. Um, and this is a testament to Roshi Chen's just galaxy brainness, um, because she was the one that convinced me to really look into Ella as a character and look at her journey and what she's going through. What, what about things from her perspective? Um, mm. What was life for Ella like before Harlem? And so I started thinking about it and I realized that these characters are about the same age as me, which means that Ella was alive for Rodney King. And as soon as that clicked, I was like, that's the story. Like, right. that's it right there. Cause that's in, in many ways, like my sort of political evolution is that one of the first political memories I have as a kid is watching tape of the Rodney King beating on like the Today Show before getting ready to go for school, go to school. Um, that's like one of the first news stories. It's like that, the Oklahoma City bombing and like Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding. And that like, it made such a huge impression in, in me, but I didn't know what to do with it because I was a kid. Like, I didn't know how to process that. But looking back now from the vantage point of having completed Riot Baby, like that's that's the journey for, for Ella, for Kev, but also for me in many instances. And so I think, I think one of the things that's resonating with a lot of people now with regards to Riot Baby is its commentary on the interminability of so much of this, um, of the assault on black Americans and the sort of perniciousness of racism in the ways in which it's infiltrated every single institution. Like it's not just cops, it's not just jail, it's in the hospital. Like the fulcrum of the story is Ella seeing how mama was treated and being like, okay, all bets are off. Like it's, right. it's over for y'all. Um, so that's where Riot Baby came from essentially. Sure. I know that there are questions. I want to get off another one of my questions that's just too closely related, and then we're going to come to other questions. Not like, uh, sorry, I hijacked it. That's my man's. <laughs> we out here. Stylistically, work like Beast Made of Night and Riot Baby are very different. I'd say both paint a very rich and detailed world or detailed worlds, but Beast and, and similar works I, I would offer are far more accessible in like meter, in rhythm. Riot Baby is also very, very musical and very like, yo, just that's New York hip hop, like bang, like it just hits you in the head with it. But like, it's also has this thing kind of like a Sondheim thing, kind of like this to pimp a butterfly thing where it's like, your job is to just sit there and receive it. Don't try to keep up with me. I definitely was reading this book and I almost text you a few times. I was like, boy, if you don't let me get a hook in this rhythm, cause I'm trying to hang in with this. I got the story, but it was, it, it, Abrupt is a word that comes to my mind, and, and I'm, I was, I was salty, but also like I kept reading it, obviously. So, 
what did you hope to convey with that choice of cadence? Where did like, where did that choice come from? I wanted it to be disorienting. Um, mm -hmm. And I wanted it to be nonstop. And that's part of the reason why the book is as short as it is, is that I couldn't sustain that for a whole like 400 pages. Like that would be, I, I would be a husk not, of a human being. Not infinite jest of that? No. <laughs> All right, like, that, would, that would not serve me. That would not serve you. Um, I wanted it to be, I wanted a certain relentlessness of it. And I wanted it in many ways to be a sort of jazz solo where just as you think you're getting the rhythm of it, you know, the saxophonist, the trumpeter, they switch it up. They switch it up. It's sort of polyphonic in that way. But also too, like for me, it's, it's interesting because writing YA and particularly Beast Made of Night um, is in many ways like playing basketball, right? Like the goal is to get the ball in the hoop. There are a number of ways you can do that. You, you know, you have the three point jumper. If you're Steph, you can shoot from the, you know, shoot from the logo, <laughs> you know? You got the mid-range jumper, you could drive to the rim, you could dunk, you got the finger roll, all of that. But the goal is essentially the same, is to get the ball in the hoop. Whereas writing adult oftentimes feels like, at least on a sentence level, the X games, where the goal is to pull off the most physically and stylistically daring trick you can manage. Gosh. Basically, how can, I, how can I tell gravity I don't know her as creatively as possible? Mm. And those two things in many ways are the animating impulses behind stylistic choices that I make in each one. I got to go ham on the pros and Riot Baby. I, yeah, it was, yeah. How, yo fam, a lot of people be out here like, the end of Riot Baby is hopeful. And I'd be like, eh, okay. Like, you know, I, I, I am out here to try to tell somebody what is or isn't. I find that perception confusing. And so I wanted to get your perspective on the ending of Riot Baby and sort of in, in your thoughts on this, on the notion, the perspective, the idea that I'm like, oh, it, that it's hopeful. Certainly. So I intend, the, the very last word of Riot Baby is very intentional. It's immensely intentional. And one of the reasons for that is I wanted each reader to think about what that word meant in the context of everything that had just come before. Because I knew that for each reader, there would be a different interpretation. And sometimes that difference is a matter of shade. Sometimes it's totally different visions. But it really, th it, it really did throw me for a loop, particularly when I would see white reviewers calling the, the ending of the book hopeful. It was really interesting to me in part because I was like, hopeful for whom? You know, similar to how, you know, people would call the book dystopian where, you know, the question was dystopian for whom? You know, the end of Riot Baby, it's not as though it's completely unambiguous with regards to the suffering that's going to happen you know you know sort of after the page but the people like the people who were saying hopeful i was really interested in why they thought that was because if a house is on fire and you can't conceive of yourself as being inside that house when it's on fire that's interesting to me mm -hmm. that's very interesting to me yeah, man, I'm out here like, yo, there's gun turrets on the buildings. Hopeful what? Like, I mean, this is me, John Fitzwiley, making eye statements. I was like, bro, what are you talking about? I don't understand what you mean by that. But I like the phrasing of for whom? For whom? So there were questions in the chat. Amy been out yeah. doing God's work. She's like, yo. Um, I'm organizing now. I'm trying to... Uh some fluttering to the top here. I love that you brought up the pacing of it because I feel like that is the thing that I recommend to people when I give it to them is like, read this, listen to it, but like sit down and give yourself an afternoon to do it or like just a couple of sittings because that is such an important part of it. That's such an important part of the experience is to actually like feel the stop and the start and the going and the needing to take a pause and getting jolted back and forth. Um, I feel like that is just so essential. So. So glad you talked about it. That was a great question, Jonathan. Um, holy crap, I've got so many questions. I'm gonna do um, the first one. I'm gonna paraphrase a little bit. It's somebody, uh, his name is Michael. So he said in the book, the, the writing of the dialogue seems very real. Um, and I think that this is referring back to like your upbringing in Connecticut um, and then going to boarding school. He wants to know how, how did you learn so much about prison? And how did you so like create that dialogue? Certainly. So all the, the Rikers stuff essentially comes from the time that I <laughs> spent working in Rikers. Um, 
that when I was with the Legal Aid Society, I their parole revocation defense unit is essentially like you know criminal defense, but for parolees. And so, if you're a parolee, say you've been you know violated, which is the term of art, you know you've been clogged for a parole violation, and you're brought back to Rikers. Um, and then it's going to be decided whether or not you will remain in Rikers for the remainder of your sentence, or the you know the sentence that's imposed because of the violation, or you'll be released, right? And so. Because of my work, I basically Monday through Friday had to spend all day in that jail, in that facility. And the thing that struck me perhaps the most was how much humanity exists in those places. You know, the depictions of jail and prison in particular that we see in movies and TV that we read in books as though it's this, you know, violence is omnipresent. You know, it's all animals in there. It's like you lose your humanity as soon as you get into into jail. And for me, what I witnessed was literally the opposite. It's human beings in there. It's people that do book clubs. Like it's, you know, it's people that, that like to garden. It's people that like, you know, all sorts of things, people that make jokes, people that like, there's a whole swath of TikTok that's like prison TikTok where it's dudes doing the renegade dance and like teaching you how to boil ramen in your cell on TikTok. Like, so <laughs> So that I think is one of the, and you know, that goes back to, to Jonathan's earlier question about how I was able to sort of integrate a lot of my, my life and the stuff that existed outside of the writing into the writing was that I knew as I was witnessing all of this and experiencing all of this, that it had to make its way into my writing somehow. I couldn't just let this stuff sit inside me. And so Riot Baby just ended up being the vessel through which a lot of that stuff was communicated. With regards to the dialogue, that's just stuff that I've heard in life. Like when I was, when I was working at the AG's office, I lived, I lived off the 145th Street stop on the ABCD, 145th and St. Nicholas. It was in Harlem. And that corner, that street corner that's mentioned in the book, that street corner of 145th and St. Nicholas that has the subway shop, that has the subway stop and the bodega there, that's all, that's all real. Like those, that exists. That absolutely exists. That is a real street corner. Those dudes, I've heard those dudes speak. And basically it's just like, <laughs> I wrote down what they were saying, what they were talking about. That's, I think that was part of the, the you know, the thing with Riot Baby was a lot of it was just listening to people talk. So we've got a couple more about Riot Baby and then some kind of bigger ones about process and inspiration and all of that. So from Catherine, she wants to know, she said, what struck me is there are no physical descriptions in Riot Baby. I don't know what anybody looks like, but the descriptions of the expressions on the character faces. Could you talk about how you made that choice? That's a very astute observation. Oh my goodness. That, yeah, like that, to me, I wanted to, you know, it's in many ways a matter of trying to make the reader as complicit as possible in the storytelling experience. I want them to imagine the character based on the baggage that they bring with them to the story. I want them to imagine, you know, what certain things look like based on, I don't want to tell them what I think a thing looks like. If I think, it can be if that if the experience of that thing can be enriched by them bringing their own history into it. Yeah, like that. I mean, that's sort of the long and short of it is I wanted to make the reader complicit. I wanted to make the reader a part of this experience as much as possible. You had a couple comments too about the magical realism. Where did where did that come from for you? It's it's funny. I I remember watching the finale of Watchmen and feeling I'm not going to go into details, but feeling very vindicated by that last image. Um, that's all I'm going to say on that. But I for me, in many ways, Ella's power, I wanted it to allow me to pull some things off prose wise, because I knew this was going to be a very expansive story. As short as it is in page count, I knew there was a lot that I wanted to cover. And so I needed whatever Ella's power would be to allow for that sort of thing. And now techniques wise, there, there is a sort of head hopping that, can, that you can do as a writer. I think an example of it would be in Pachinko by Min Jin Lee. She does this perfectly well where she's writing in third person, but she can hop from, and it's a limited third person. So you're getting the inside of a person's thoughts, um, but you know, it's all he, she, they, um, but she's able to hop from the inside of one character said to another character said to another character said, and I haven't quite been able to pull that off. The only way that I've been able to pull that off is by literally giving a character the power of telepathy. <laughs> 
but that was, it was sort of like, what were the needs of the story? And then Ella's powers sort of, you know, grew to fill that. But I also liked that it made her seem more and more sort of godlike and omnipotent because when you contrast that with what she's unable to do, which is like, keep Kev out of jail, um, it makes it all the more tragic like that friction just becomes almost overwhelming. Um, so that's where a lot, of, a lot of that came from. I hesitate with the term magical realism just because it's like such a specific term and harkens to such a specific subset of like Latin American literature that's in response to certain um, episodes of political upheaval. But like, I get, I, get the, I get the application here. So we have a question from Zachary. He wants to know, have you thought about getting back into comic writing or is that something you're already doing? Yo, oh my goodness, shout out to Zach. <laughs> this is, it's very, it's wonderful because it's an opportunity for me to plug a thing that is coming out later this month. I was able to do a one shot with Marvel, uh, a short story as part of an anthology, my first comic, my first Marvel comic. Uh, it's a story about Domino, who featured in the latest Deadpool movie and is one of my favorite characters. Um, so the issue is Marvel's Voices Legacy number one. It's coming out February 24th. Um, feel free to add it to your comic stores pull list. It was an incredible experience. Ken Lashley does the art and like that man resides on Mount Olympus for me in terms of like comic book luminaries. And so to have his art on a story that I wrote is literally a dream come true. You heard it here first, librarians, <laughs> get it for your collection. So I am gonna ask just one more question. And this is one that I thought was really interesting and I'd love to hear your take on it. We had someone ask, besides anime, what else helped nurture your imagination in a way that didn't center whiteness? Oh man, that's such a tremendous question. Oh my goodness. Reading books in translation. Reading, I love, so when I was in college, I was very interested in the world outside of America. Like it was all international relations for me. Like that was the thing that I focused on. And even all my political economy stuff, my poli-sci stuff, I was focused on what was going on in, you know, in the Middle East, in Latin America, in Sub-Saharan Africa. Like I wanted to know what was going on there. And as my interests got sort of skewed more literary, I maintained that dynamic with regards to the stories that were being told. And so for me, like I'm really big, I'm going through a bit of a sort of Korean literature phase right now. <laughs> I've been reading a lot of Han Kang. So the vegetarian, which is what she's, I think most famous for, won the Man Booker International Prize, I think a couple of years back. And then Human Acts, which is about the Gwangju massacre in the 1980s. Um, tremendous books, like super, super, super intense books. Um, and there, and you know, Pachinko is another example of this. And it's fascinating to me because it's a story about like a Korean family during Japanese occupation and the way, the, the ways in which they've, it's so capacious. It's so absolutely capacious. So that's another thing too. Also just reading you know, not even re like also reading English language authors who just come from different backgrounds. Like my favorite book that's not The Count of Monte Cristo is A Brief History of Seven Killings by Marlon James. That book has no right existing. Like, look at it this way. Y you take As I Lay Dying by William Faulkner. And instead of the center event being Addie Bundren's funeral, the center event is a 1976 assassination attempt on Bob Marley. And it's written 85% in Jamaican Patois. How dare this book exist? How dare, it's one of the most mind-bendingly brilliant and chaotic and like, I read that book and I was like, oh, so you can also get away with doing this? Okay, all bets are off. Like that book is tremendous. And so I think, you know, one way to, to get around sort of the white gaze is to just read outside of it. I mean, I think, you know, reading literature and translation is a good way of that. But like also too, like, digging into authors that come from totally different literary traditions and whatnot. Like it's, it's the, the bounty is so huge, is so huge. So I, I think we are like coming towards the end of this, but I do want to know, how did you feel when you found out that Marlon James was going to be a blurb on Riot Baby? Yo fam, so I was on a train, <laughs> I was on a Metro North train when I found out. So, so it's funny because like Marlon James is the homie, right? And I remember I first met him the fall of 2015. This was before he won the Booker. And it was at the Brooklyn Book Festival. And I, you know, I was broke in New York and I had just found out that this festival was a thing. It was one of the very first like festivals I'd ever gone to because I didn't even know book festivals were a thing. 
So I went and I'd read A Brief History of Seven Killings that summer. And what's funny about that is that the bar exam like study course that I was supposed to be taking that summer was online, but my computer decided to like, you know, say goodbye for like the first week. So I had to send it to the shop. So I was out of a computer for that entire first week. I decided to go to the hometown library to pick up a book just to like keep me busy. And I saw the cover of Brief History. It was this bright yellow cover with this little green like sparrow or hummingbird on the cover. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. I opened the flap and I'm reading the summary and I'm like, oh, okay, I take this book home. It's 700 plus pages. I read it in four days, four days. It was like staring at the sun. And so fast forward to September, I get to meet him. He's on a panel. I like gush. Like I'm at the signing table and I literally, it's like that scene in Amelie where she falls into a pool of water. Like that was, that was me. And then fast forward to like 2018, he has, you know, he's getting ready to release the first in his Dark Star trilogy, the first book in his Dark Star trilogy, uh, Black Leopard, Red Wolf. And I, through Electric Literature, was a public, which was a publication that I was writing for at the time, I got to interview him. So I got set up. And also another thing too, was we had wound up on a panel together at Comic-Con. All these things, all these like dots connect, don't worry. Um, so we were like crossing paths and at each instance I was like gushing over him. So we meet up, you know, for the, for the interview and I'm like, hey, by the way, like I got this, I got this book I'm writing called like Riot Baby. And I was wondering if you like would be down to like check it out. And he's like, yeah, send it like immediately. <laughs> um, and at first I was like, nah, he's just being polite. Right. But then my, my editor Roshi sent it to him. And, and then I kind of like forgot about it. Right. Like it was always sort of in the back of my mind that like my book is in his possession, like an advanced bound manuscript of it is in his possession. But I was like, nah, like this isn't, you know, it's, it's cool, but he's not gonna, he's not really gonna. And then as I was on a train, I think I was heading into work actually, or I was heading back from work. I was on a Metro North train, um, you know, with this very taxing job, this very taxing day job. And I get an email from Roshi. I had like the first bit of blurbs and stuff. And it had the Marlon James blur. And yo, I broke down into tears on a train in front of people. It was a crowded train. <laughs> and I saw that blur. I just, I, I fell apart. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. it. It literally was a dream come true. It was, it was one of the wildest train rides of, of my life. Um, it was amazing. I believe Shout that. out to you, Marlon. I love it. Um, so thanks to everybody who has been able to stick around for a little bit longer today. Uh, this is all going to be on the PCL uh, website. We've got free books at South Providence, Washington Park, and Mount Pleasant. If you have a book club that you want to read this with, stop by at one of these branches. We're happy to give you a book set. And uh, check out Reading Across Rhode Island at ribook.org. And I'm going to pass it over to Amy to do a little wrap up. Toshi, Jonathan, your dynamic is beautiful. I think this is like the funnest PCL reads we, we've had uh, all year. And it's what everyone needed tonight, I think, especially myself. Thank you, everyone. This was wonderful. Thank you, Amy, for hosting. And thank you guys for being here. This is so great. Toshi, Jonathan, you guys are awesome. Thanks for listening today. Reading Across Rhode Island is in the midst of its 2021 programming season. If you're looking to get involved, read Riot Baby, or stamped with a discussion group, or just want to find out more about the Rhode Island Center for the Book, visit us at ribook.org and on Facebook and Instagram. You can check out future PCL Reads events at provcomlib.org. Roadie Radio is a project of the Office of Library and Information Services and is supported by a grant from the Rhode Island Council for the Humanities. <laughs>